Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Viga. Today's guest is Arun Dol, who was adopted by a German couple from an Indian orphanage. Like many adoptees, Arun started to search for his roots in his late teens. The Indian orphanage did not want to provide him access to his file, and as a result, Arun addressed the Indian courts, taking him 17 years to finally obtain access to the desired information. This is how he learned that adoption is not about what is good for children, but rather protects the interests of adoption agencies, adoptive parents, and other vested interests. During his long struggle to obtain his right to know the identity of his mother, Arun teamed up with Indian child rights activists, and this was the beginning of his advocacy on children's rights work. Following a major trafficking scandal, in 2005, Arun took up the cases of several Indian families whose children were kidnapped, sold to orphanages, and adopted abroad. The media reporting about his own case led many Indian adoptees to contact him. He advised them on their searches and eventually organized searches in India with the help of his Indian network of social workers and lawyers. Arun gave up his job as a financial consultant and formed the organization the Adoptee Rights Council, which he currently directs along with directing against child trafficking, dedicating his life to children's rights and correcting the injustice of intercountry adoption, one case at a time. I welcome Arun Dol to Savage Minds. One thing that I have learned since starting my work in child trafficking in 2010 after the Haiti earthquake is that there are two stories about adoption, international adoption specifically, those that parents who undertake international adoption tell themselves and their social circles and families. And then there is what I would call the real story. And it's a story that will have me with my inbox stuffed full of angry emails from these parents, very bitter about what you and I will probably say. I wanted to know if you might start to talk about this bifurcated reality, the one in which you grew up in with a German couple having adopted you and your realization as to what was behind the mechanism that took your life from the hands of your parents to this other family. Oh, that's a long story. I mean, basically, um, personally, I was, um, for me, adoption, inter-country adoption was just a normal thing, you know, one family, one mother. So that's what I was always told. My mother could not care for me. She abandoned me in the hospital. On the other hand, I had a name always. So I never, I never really thought that there's something strange about it because you grow up with that. So once when I wanted to find out who's my mother, then I started to feel something is odd because the orphanage was not willing to share her address or her contact details. They were just saying, oh, we don't have any records. It's so long ago. At that time, I was, that was in 1993, so I was just 20, and I had no idea how to actually navigate this country, India. And it, 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 I only started really to search in 1999, at the time when there was no Google, no Facebook, there was Yahoo and Metacrawler and all that. So I started researching adoption and trying to re-engineer how did this process happen? I mean, how can I find my mother, basically? And I turned to 
adoptive parent-led groups, I mean, in Germany, there's an adoption forum, Yahoo group it was, and there was an US-American forum run by a US-American adoption agency person. And I turned to these forums asking for help and trying to trace back my family. And, um, you know, the, the response was rather friendly in the beginning, very understanding and adoptive parents wanted to learn from me how to parent their children right. And they were first very welcoming. The moment, and most of them were saying it's not possible in India. So the, it was like, it was strange. And even the adoption agencies, which are the experts, you know, you think they are the ones licensed. I mean, they should know. They, they, they reacted very hostile. So I started, of course, digging. So that was actually also part of my, partially my motivation into understanding why these adoptive parents communities are so hostile and why these agencies are so hostile. And then I started, you know, traveling to India and I met um, women and child rights activists in India who were fighting child trafficking for inter-country adoption from the state of Andhra Pradesh. And, you know, I met also other people and I also was writing in these forums about it and I got a lot of hate, got kicked out and called mentally sick and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that motivated me to dig deeper. What is behind this facade? And then I came across parents whose children were actually kidnapped and, you know, legally adopted to the Netherlands, to Australia and to uh, United States and to Denmark also. And I started helping these parents and started investigating these practices of, of the agencies. While, of course, simultaneously, I had started fighting my own case. So I had to travel for my court case. Um, I mean, I had actually taken my orphanage up to court and um, filed a criminal case against the orphanage. So that didn't make me many friends either. In fact, I got rather much hate for that and no support. And so, you know, I had to travel to India many times. So I started helping other adoptees, saw their paperwork and found there's a totally different reality between what's actually happening on the, in the field, on the ground, the way the agencies, you know, project, project their work of helping children and the way they also react when you actually go to them and say, listen, um, you actually may have by accident, you know, mediated a kidnapped child. They just deny. And in, two, in 2007, the media took all my work up, essentially, and it was exposed in, in Australia, in, in the United States, in the Netherlands and in Denmark. And, you know, then we started, I, I started meeting our founder, Ruli Post, who had actually worked in the European Commission, who's now a whistleblower, but she was a civil servant for the European Commission. And she had actually helped Romania to implement the UN Convention on the Right of the Child and to um, yeah, stop that trade in children, which was happening in Romania. And when I say she had done that, I mean, she was a task manager. We, uh, I mean, the, the European Union, meaning the European Parliament, the European Commission and the European Council, they were wanted all to stop that business. And due to Romania being 
becoming a member of the EU, Romania had, this is called the Copenhagen Cachera, Romania had to stop selling the children abroad and implement human rights. Um, yeah, the UN Convention on the Right of the Child. So, and she was, of course, also met with the same adoption mob. But, you know, the European Union is a pretty strong organization. <laughs> That's our government. And they actually forced Romania to implement the UN Convention on the Right of the Child. 2001, uh, Romania stopped. Uh, put a moratorium. 2004, Romania closed. Can you, for our listeners, just explain what that means? Because a lot of our listeners will not understand what that implicates in terms of transnational adoption and trafficking. We have a strange situation in intercountry adoptions and child rights. We have a situation where there are two conventions. One convention is the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which in fact gives children a broad range of rights, right to play, right to education, uh, and so on. And, but it also obliges states that when a child cannot be cared for by his or her parents, that they have to crea create an alternative care system. Of course, first and foremost, the child has a right to be cared for by his her and her parents, and of course, to know them. So that also implicates that states have to support families and support parents, which in fact we have in Europe. We have, broadly speaking, healthcare, unemployment insurances and things like that, a bit more in the Germany than in the newer Euro European countries, but broadly we have this all implemented. And that was also what, of course, had to be implemented in Romania when Romania wanted to become a member of the European Union. So it's basically the European Union, in simple terms, it's like a club with its club rules. And we, in Europe, the old EU member states, we do not, after the UN Convention on the Right of the Child, most countries have actually stopped exporting children for intercountry adoption. In Europe, we had that problem too. So because during the negotiations of the UN Convention on the Right of the Child, the adoption lobby realized that they will not get their agenda through adoptions and adoptions will more or less stop intercountry adoptions. They started drafting a new convention, which is called the Hague Adoption Convention. This convention was passed in 1993 mm -hmm. and, uh, um, you know, countries started ratifying, ratifying it. But it's a private law convention, has nothing to do with the United States. It's just the, private, uh, the Conference of Private International Law in The Hague, which is you know, not, not really like the United Nations. But this convention puts more emphasis on permanency and does not foresee foster care or residential care, any form of residential care, even quality family types home, any more a suitable manner of care. Whereas the UN Convention on the Right of the Child said that says that intercountry adoption on a macro policy level is only permissible if there's no other suitable manner of care available in the country. So the adoption lobby, which is also clear, International Social Service, two officers of the Permanent Bureau were part of International Social Service, which is the biggest adoption network worldwide, still by numbers. And they had started, you know, the adoptions from Greece, then from Europe, then from Korea, Vietnam, Bangladesh, you find them everywhere. 
So when Romania wanted to come, I mean, Romania was, of course, after Ceausescu was shot in, uh, in 1989, and the market for children in Romania opened, Romania was also advised by ISS and Defense for Children International and, and, and UNICEF to actually implement the Hague Adoption Convention. And that turned out to be a wonderfully badly regulated market where all kinds of abuses took place. Prima facie, it was all legal because all was, uh, procedures were supposedly followed. But, you know, Romania was at times exporting more than 3,500 children and it's a very small country, so that's a huge amount of children. And when in 1998, I think, um, you know, on one hand, the EU wanted to expand and the old Eastern European countries wanted to become a member of the European Union. Then they wanted to become part of the club. And when you become part of the club, you have to subscribe to the rules. And that is in, uh, yeah, in legal language, it is EU law. And, and the Hague Adoption Convention is not part of EU law, but the UN Convention on the Right of the Child. And, you know, in Copenhagen, there were criteria set what conditions countries who want to join the EU have to fulfill. And that is the Copenhagen criteria. And that is also respect for children's rights, like they are enshrined in the UN Convention on the Right of the Child. So that's why the European Union could force Romania to stop their business in children, implement children properly, break down the big children's home, we all know the terrible pictures, build up foster care and sadly also domestic adoptions, but that's another topic. <coughs> yeah, so in Romania, within a few years, everything was set straight, but it was met with a fearful lobby of uh, yeah, agencies, adoptive parents, the business, the mafia, whatever you want to have. So many listeners are going to hear what you're saying and they're going to say this, not all international adoptees are trafficked. What do you say to that? Because there is, as I mentioned earlier, a disconnect between what people see as legitimate adoption, the way they see adoption as being something that helps the child, and then this other story that you have seen, that I have seen, where a very colonial mentality has taken hold. From the beginning, I have to say, this isn't new. Colonialism is very much wrapped up in these foreigners believing that they can offer their child or the child a better life, often linked to wealth, often linked to political power plus wealth. And in order to talk about adoption head on, Arun, we need to be able to talk about what this means to be someone who believes that taking a child from a family who is poor, let's not even say trafficked, who is poor, that that might be a most unethical act. You brought up several things. So let me start with trafficking. The, the, US, the United States, the US State Department will never ever even if a child has been kidnapped or sold outright, considers this as trafficking. This comes from 
die Palermo Protocol, Anti-Trafficking uh, Pro Protocol, where the condition of exploitation has to be met. So the US American view is that children who are being adopted are not being exploited. We have, we have, so it could be actually sale of children, but not legally trafficking. So our definition for trafficking is when children's rights are being systematically systematically violated in an inter-country adoption system for the reasons you say that children are being taken from poor family by whatever means, even if they're you know, legally taken, even if in India a parent uh, who has sold, I mean, we have these cases now where children uh, were sold by their mothers, desperate mothers sold their children, the children were rescued, the children were taken into state care and the mothers then legally surrendered the children. So what's the difference? So for me, this is legalized child trafficking because the children's rights have been uh, violated. And as you say, the parents did not get any support. There is no support. It's just societal pressure. If you're an unmarried mother in India to part with your children, there is no real state support for mothers or poor families. So the whole system, we consider child trafficking. This legalized child trafficking. And that's a, you know, that's the evil part of it where the Hague Convention actually legalizes and legitimizes it. Now let's come to what does it do to a child? A child is born to his or her genetic parents. And that's usually, you know, a genetic man, a genetic, uh, um, a genetic woman. And usually these people should be on the birth certificate. Then we actually, in adoption, we get a new birth certificate. And children suddenly have to pretend as if they were born to, let me say it in my case, I'm born to two white parents according to my birth certificate. That's not matching up. And that's a hell of a lot of work to pretend to be somebody else than you actually are. So you change on paper the identity of the child, but that's not all. Because as a child, you have no other means. Either you attach to your adult or you somehow get along with those people who raise you because as a child, you're actually dependent on those people. So I was lucky that my adoptive parents did their rather nice and good job, but other adoptees are not that lucky. But even, even in my case, where Everybody would say my adoptive parents are wonderful and I don't really have another complaint <laughs> about the way they raised me. So, you know, even then it changes your identity. I don't speak the language anymore of my country in India. I sit here in an office where everybody speaks Marathi. I don't understand it. They, even Hindi, I don't understand. I don't like their food anymore. I want a bratwurst. It sounds like a small thing, but it's, 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 it goes that deep. So your complete identity is changed. And that is actually um, exploitation because you actually, as a child, fulfill the w parenting wish of another couple. And that's hard work. And most adoptees this or that way fail. Many adoptees fail to reach their full potential in life. Mm -mm because of this identity crisis. Some may overcome this identity crisis. Um, some get stuck or 
repeatedly hit by it. Um, um, for those adoptees who, you know, got abused by their adoptive parents and psychological abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, which also happens a lot, um, you know, you add a lot of, uh, you let a, add a lot of additional traumas to that. We know that there is a lot of exploitation of children, both within the foster care system and the adoption system, as you just mentioned, psychological, sexual, physical. Many people see adoptive parents as saving children from a worse fate, often linked to economic prowess when it, when it comes time to analyze the international sphere. Even domestically, many adults who attempt to adopt children look at this as saving children from a worser fate. I've written a lot about this because when I started work in Haiti on child trafficking, I was astounded by the way in which, as you've described, but in different ways in Haiti, how the law does not actually look at adoption as a form of exploitation. And again, I know parents who've adopted children internationally or domestically might find this offensive, but it's, it really does take a paradigm shift to look at how adoption functions on a political legal level and on a very communal level. I'm going to read some things that I've written about this. There's an Italian philosopher, brilliant, uh, his name is Giorgio Agamben, and he and Michel Foucault have written quite a bit in their lives on the core of biopolitics. While Foucault focuses on the state's concern with the biological surveillance and control over populations from disease control, sanitation, and education, Agamben modifies this notion of biopower slightly, expanding Foucault's definition to include control of populations through what he calls bare life. And Agamben borrows from Aristotle, characterizing biopower as a law which maintains the power to, to define the simple act of living, what he calls bare life from the Greek zoe, of its citizens. He demonstrates how this simple fact of living is actually excluded from law since the end of political discourse is not bare life, opposing bare life to politically qualified life, bios, Agamben maintains that the qualified life is the focus of the modern state in its drive to create competing articulations of life according to the good. In this way, he proposes that bare life is a simple, unqualified fact of living included within the discourse of politics through its very exclusion. Looking at adoption, for instance, the subject of bare life remains absorbed by the law that the state is tasked with finding this child a better family since its mother's in prison, let's say. This happens a lot with national adoptions. And yet, this bare life resides outside of the ultimate goal of the state, transforming the bare life into the good life, such that every child who is put into the international adoption system is already made a political subject where their lives only have meaning in terms of what the state wants it to have, in terms of what these adoption agencies and parents seeking to adopt believe themselves to be. So with, as you mentioned earlier, the competing, the conflicts between various conventions for the right of the child and the UN, uh, from the UN and then the Hague Adoption Convention, 
we've got serious problems when it comes to not only what you were tasked with trying to find your mother, your birth mother, as it's called in the West, but whatever, these, these terms even, birth mother, adoptive parents, all these terms have been created to cover up, in essence, the fact that a child is born in X place and that another person or couple has the political and economic advantage to have that child. It's always under the guise of what is in the best interest of the child according to what Agamben has characterized as bare life and the good life. Now, are there any countries in the world today that you see understanding this stress between the child's right to be raised by its parent, even in the case of what you mentioned, mothers selling children. This happened in Haiti too. These were not evil women. These were destitute women. The fact that economic oppression, a reality, and people now after lockdown 21 months ago are very aware of how easily economic oppression can happen to them, that a structure, be it a state or a, a transnational adoption agency, taking a child from your home, it seems absolutely surreal that this is still going on and that laws have not been rolled out to make this an illegal practice, Arun. I mean, you have said it so eloquently. Um, uh, uh, let me pick up on bare life. So we really have to see and revisit the UN Convention on the Right of the Child. And then we have also to see what you said, that the state has actually the obligation to make bare life more livable for its, for its citizens. So this, this is a, a discourse where, as in the US or Anglo-Saxon discourse, we do, they have a different understanding of human rights, maybe, than what I grew up with in, um, in Germany. So, you know, we are rights holders, even as adults, and of course, even children as more. And that is international law. So what you're describing, or what we are currently doing in a intercountry adoptions, taking a child out of a country is not permissible. If you read Article 21b, it is not permissible to take a child out of the country unless there's really no other suitable manner of care available. And if you go to Haiti or Malawi, understandably, the, uh, the living conditions, or India even, <laughs> the living conditions are different than in Germany or in the United States in an affluent family. But there is, it is not permissible by international law. And doing this systematically, I would call a crime against humanity. But the problem we are having is that we have international social service and we have the Hague, the co private conference, uh, uh, the conference, not the, the conference of private international law in the Hague, who have come up with the Hague Adoption Convention. And they are working now on another project, which is called the Parentage Project. So they're going to, they're going to legitimize even surrogacy. So we are now in a, in a new era, whereas most countries try to keep their children at least for domestic adoption, which is also wrong. But the babies are not available for in, from India or from many other countries. You won't be able to adopt a baby, but you know, couples need a baby <laughs> or single men or single women also want to reproduce. So we are talking about suddenly an issue which is reproduction. 
and <laughs> reproductive rights and having a child suddenly becoming a right. And the lobby, as I say, the children's market mafia, also the white collar mafia, says that child rights are only applicable after the child is born. So we are currently creating where we have not even birth mothers anymore, but I call them breeding garages to make clear how badly that surrogacy is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what is called gestational carrier. That's the official word. But you know, I mean, what are we doing to bear life also where, you know, usually two people come together and have a child. And if it's not possible, then these two people <laughs> have to accept you cannot take another person's child or genetic material to create your own child. Because what we see with donor conceived I don't even know what to say, <laughs> conceived persons <laughs> or purchased or created children. So they have the same um, urge and very similar identity issues as adult adoptees. So they also go to court demanding that having access to the information about their donor father. So one would say yeah, a little one sperm, what is this? No, behind the genetic material is also bare life. It's, you know, generations of generations of our grandparents, grand, 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 grandparents. It's a whole family tree. So human life is more than a commodity. You see, you cannot buy another human and buying even a sperm or an egg is already human trafficking. And of course, if you start, ex uh, if you start with surrogacy, then it's very clear, business and children, and this should be stopped. And I do not see any state really standing up to that. Currently, all states are, you know, trying to actually legitimize surrogacy, even though they call it what it's called, uh, non-commercial surrogacy. Uh, there's another word for it. Um, oh, the type of volunteer surrogacy where you do a favor yeah. to a friend or a sister. Well. I have changed uh, somewhat on my views about this, I have to say. Obviously, what we saw in India, and this has since been made illegal, uh, international surrogacy, although national surrogacy is still legal in the country, is a huge problem of how women's bodies are being used as factories. At the same time, with the rise of gay and lesbian rights and couples wanting to have children, they have two ways of having them. One, especially for women, it's much easier to have a sperm donor, and sperm donation has far preceded lesbian rights, let's, let's be honest. Sperm donation, yes. I actually yes. don't have a problem with for the simple reason <coughs> that if men were so attached to their sperm, we would have no illegitimate children. Da -da -da. Sorry about that, but <laughs> you know what I mean. I do have no, a bit true. more of an issue, I have a, quite a bit of an issue with what is called surrogacy. Again, these are sanitized words. Uh, <laughs> there have been some exposés about some of the surrogacy places in India. When you start to look at surrogacy, yes. this becomes about a woman not just housing a child, but giving nine months of her life plus any complications, any kind. I mean, a woman stopping work yes. for nine months is no joke, especially today especially a woman in her 20s or 30s, stopping work for nine months. This is a no-joke situation economically for her because while many of these gay stars that you see splashed on the paper saying, we had a baby, and there's no mention of the woman in these stories, by the way, they 
can pay all they want for those nine months. The reality is that anyone, male or female, taking nine months off on their CV is a huge question mark for employers. <laughs> what are, how do you explain yeah. that to an employer? Well, <coughs> I sold my services as a professional surrogate. It doesn't work like that. That's just one aspect among the more ethical aspects of how ethical is it to use a woman's body to create a project for a couple, be they two gay men, be they a straight couple. And there are many surrogacy questions there that so many women and men have taken up in recent, recent years. Now, and there are many groups about this as well, but the larger problem is that when people hear us talking, they're going to think that we're just being mean about international adoptions. There are children starving. That look at what happened in Romania. They were really starving. They should have been adopted. Then skip back to the fact that India stopped all surrogacy in recent years, but also you can't just go to India and adopt a child as an international resident. So India is quite aware on the one hand that there's a problem, even if it hasn't stopped everything domestically, right? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about surrogacy, um, Yes, I mean, as a foreigner, you can't uh, use surrogacy, uh, surrogacy services anymore, but, uh, you know, domestic couples can still use uh, surrogacy, though supposedly non-commercial, and I think the surrogacy bill is still not through. It's, 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 it's been stuck. In terms of adoption, India is a very good example of um, implementing a Hague-compliant adoption system. So while there are no healthy babies going out, these healthy babies go to domestic couples. So when you say about illegitimate children, this still happens in India, not that much before. Women are much more, even girls are much more aware these days how to prevent pregnancies. But there are still situations where, you know, there is a baby, illegitimate child, and those babies go usually to domestic couples. At the same time, the, India has implemented a system which is compliant with the Hague Adoption Convention. So basically those children who cannot be put on the Indian legalized adoption market, those children are being put up for intercountry adoption, so-called special needs children. So either you have a ear note right or, you know, a little bit uh, uh, correctable special needs or the children are older. So India is currently exporting children at the age of 14 <laughs> to Italy. So imagine an Indian child, Indian food, Indian language going to Italy. I mean, that they are going to have uh, learning disabilities because they have trouble with the languages um, is, uh, is predictable. Um, at the same time, there is little investment being done in, in um, reforming the child protection system. And that is also the answer to your earlier question. Yes, 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 all these children were suffering. The answer to this is that we need a child protection system. So first of all, a child protection system has to make sure that the child, children are not going into the system because then already something has gone wrong. And so we have, generally speaking, you know, the state has to support families and that comes from starts with daycare that goes to health insurance and unemployment insurances um, 
um, support with housings if they are poor. So if you, I mean, I grew up in Germany, and the idea that anybody has to live on the road because he's poor is actually non-existent. Nobody, I mean, exceptions uh, confirm the rule. Nobody in Germany has to live on the road. You get your your flat paid. You get a minimum income to buy your food. If you have children, the children get that too. So we have a social security system. So that's that. You know, so given that is there, and then a child needs to be taken into care, these situations happen. There are parents who, for whatever reasons, cannot take care of the children, or where the state actually has to take the children out of the family because of abuse. Then for those children, you actually need alternative care. Alternative care is mentioned in Article 20 of the UN Convention. That this is a right of the child is mentioned there. The state is obliged to set this up. And then you have essentially foster care and residential care. This is not optimum. You know, their own family would be better. But this is then the life of the child. And the state has to actually, why do we have psychologists? Why do we have social workers? The state, which is very expensive, has to actually, you know, care for the children. And when you talk about other countries, like you know, when you go to Malawi or you go to Ethiopia or you go to Haiti, then countries on a policy level have to come together and help Haiti. Now we take the example of Haiti because there was so much money poured into Haiti after the earthquake to create a proper system. But what happened in Haiti, in Haiti, instead of creating proper local care, Haiti changed the adoption laws and compliant with the Hague Adoption Convention. So the same organizations, DCI, International Social Service, Terzizom, they were actually forcing, pushing Haiti to ratify the Hague Adoption Convention. And in Haiti, where earlier you had legislation which would not cut the legal relationship between parents and children, now the legislation has changed so that there is no legal tie beyond these families. Earlier, it was big fraud because the parents in Haiti were never told they're no longer the parents once the child is in the Netherlands or in the US, that the children will be adopted according to local laws. So, yeah, it's the same problem. It is every, on every country, in every country on the globe, you have, you know, this adoption system, which is upheld and also created by the Hague Convention and the adoption mob undermining local child care systems. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. When I was in Haiti, I was shocked by the interlacing of NGOs who were there for various number of reasons, whether it was building toilets, building homes, food agencies, introduction of solar ovens that they didn't even use, and there was a whole solar oven cemetery there that I saw. So before the earthquake in Haiti of 2010, UNICEF estimates that there were 400,000 children approximately one of 10 living in an orphanage. And while most of these children were not orphans, because the word orphan in, in Haitian, French, and Patois doesn't mean 
actually a child without two parents. It means a child without one parent, okay? Or a parent who's not necessarily dead, but absent. Many were abandoned by their families in the, in the desire to have their child raised outside of extreme poverty, often with the hopes of their child being adopted and raised in a rich, in a very rich Western nation. This attitude is not uncommon in Haiti. At the same time, there is a gray space that has surrounded intercountry adoption there, which avoids addressing the necessary moral dilemma of creating economic enterprises wholly based on an ethos of adopting out of poverty. And this is why listeners who might think what we're saying is a bit too cruel aren't really perhaps considering the problem of what this means. This, this would mean essentially that if the US economy continues to tank, what is to keep richer nations coming in and saying, we'll take your children? First world adopting parents of poor Haitian children who are unable to be cared for by their parents because of direct economic policies from the UN, the World Bank, the IMF that have affected Haiti, right? Means that we have created this ethos sociologically and politically to create structures, not just adoption agencies, there are social workers, psychologists, and lawyers who specialize in this, as you know. It's a whole industry. So Haiti approves approximately 1,500 adoptions per year, many of which take place through American and Canadian adoption agencies, which charge fees beginning at 30,000 US dollars. Let's just start there. So there are local Haitian adoption agencies which require adoptive parents to support their child while awaiting the completion of the adoption process, often 200 US dollars per month, in a country where most people live on less than $1 per day, okay, with the total fees amounting to 25,000 US dollars. Of course, Haitians can't compete with the Westerners coming in. And I saw this. I was doing work on child trafficking and sometimes outside of the police station, I would see these Americans and Canadians coming in with papers that the police had to stamp so they could take the child home. To me, this looked like someone coming to a, a supermarket to pick up a large bag of rice. The same difference, I'm sorry to say this. And there's no external control yes. of these adoptions and the organizations which ostensibly oversee the orphanages and adoptions within Haiti, which is the uh, Institut de Bien-être Social et de Recherche. IBS area. And then they, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, that organization itself, because the head of that organization was a child trafficker, okay? I, I discovered this while working yes. in Haiti, along with another uh, person, a police officer from Quebec. So there's no oversight. People pretend that child trafficking doesn't happen to include this woman, who was the head of the Institut du Bien-être Social de Recherche. And correlatively, there is a slippage in the term of orphan. So when you go to these quote-unquote orphanages, they're called faux orphanages in French because everyone knows there are very few real orphans in Haiti, okay? So over the past three decades, even now heading on to four, there's been a deepening social crisis regarding the co-optation of children for various exchanges. The two major ones in Haiti are adoption and Restovic. You might have heard about Restovic if you've worked on this, but it's basically yeah. the form of slavery where a child is sent to the aunt's house in the city to get an education, but the child is turned into the aunt's personal slave or a stranger. Yes. And often this comes at the risk of sexual and physical abuse, okay? So a lot of people 
might not understand a damn thing what they're getting into. They are being sold this kind of Sidney Pollock, out of Africa version of the world where it's about, you know, I'm, I'm quoting from the film because it, it was too much, but you know, where is my cuckoo, Meryl Streep's character asks, and what about my Limoges? And it's the same thing. Instead of Limoges, instead of owning servants, Westerners go into these countries believing that they are saving a Chinese child, a, a, a Tibetan child, a, a Guatemalan child. So we have uh, yeah. uh, not only the fees of, involved with this, but there are now so many INGOs, international NGOs, involved in these practices that it is hard to separate the wheat from the chaff where it is literally impossible to know what is an, a legitimate international adoption or not because by virtue of the language of adoption, there are none because it's been so muddled, right? No, correct. There is, there is no legitimate... I mean, this is why we had in the Netherlands now an investigation into past inter-country adoption practices. It was the Joustra Committee, and the Joustra Committee commi essentially concluded that inter-country adoption has to be stopped. And when we talk about Haiti, Haiti and you know, NGOs, then the head stinks from the fish. So when you have UNICEF, and, and it was actually you know, also UNICEF going into Haiti and pushing Haiti instead of stopping the business and children to implement and ratify the Hague Adoption Convention. So then you have a problem. So when you have these large child rights NGOs, <laughs> which are essentially all running on private donations slash meanwhile getting also a lot of funds from the states. So when you have these private actors, then you, we get a business and children in whatever form. So like you say about Haiti, the, the head of the central authority being a trafficker, we have exposed the chairperson of the central Adoption Resource Authority in India having taken bribes and he's currently still under trial. It's going on since uh, 11 years. But you know, we have exposed that and it's been proven by the Central Bureau of Investigation. So this, we have to be very clear, there should not be any business in children, be it on surrogacy, ART or adoption. And adoption is by virtue of its definition, a private matter. So it's, you know, originally in the long term past, adoption was essentially for a family to find a heir. And usually these were adult adoptions. So the secrecy came through this Georgia Tun in the United States and whatever. But the real wave of inter-country adoptions took place during the uh, Second World War where you had actually the Nazis taking children from families and, you know, saying you are Aryan and that was a limb spore and putting it to, you know, good German families. So you had the Lebensborn uh, project of the Nazis. And that was the first wave. The second wave came with International Social Service and Jane Russell. <laughs> and um, yeah, and in the aftermath of the Second World War, and it was a fight also between the West, the capitalist system, and the socialist system of the East. And, you know, you had the first big wave coming from, from Greece of children. These children were not necessarily even orphans, they were just staying in children's homes. And you had, of course, in the Far East, the problem with Japan, Japan and the Korean War going on. So, you know, you had these international... Service actually starting the business in 
Greek Greece children and then Korean children and then of course also the children from from you know good old Europe <laughs> even from Germany and Ireland and in, 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 in this so, so and then there was a refugee relief act in the United States which was a, which was um, you know uh, allowing the immigration actually of these children so you have a huge uh, conflict here also geopolitical conflict here between the West and you know the East which was the communist and the capitalism so in between this you know child rights are somewhere situated and of course children's rights uh, require social security systems which one would say that's why we have in Europe a social market economy and not more raw capitalism like we have in the US and where everything is you know based on donations and goodwill of uh, entrepreneurs who give no taxes but they actually may donate a little bit you know from the <laughs> 200 billion they amassed they may give six billion to end the hunger it's a reference to Elon Musk but this is this is this is where where we get lost in the discussion also that we 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 need the paradigm shift into we have to look at it from a human rights lens perspective and then it is very clear intercountry has to be stopped even domestic adoptions cannot take place away they're taking no place there are no child protection measure in fact if you adopt a child domestically it's out of state care and it's essentially also not more supervised anymore and we have to improve foster care which is the only solution for example for babies you don't want a baby in a children's home so we have to improve foster care we have to support foster parents we have to build this system up and we have to um, you know highly improve all over the world child care institutions break them down make family type homes out of it there are many models on how to actually do this correctly which also some work very well I will not you know uh, but yeah, then you have on the other hand special. you have another problem however from the person who wants to have a child to adopt a child this is the dilemma in countries like the US I have a very good friend who went through the process I don't know how she went through it Arun it was very hard she had to be a foster parent for a very long time while this child's parent was not able to care for her child also in prison the father completely disinterested in this child still years drag on drag on and this child is seeing in the courtroom her father sort of want to use her as some kind of political tool and at the end it all worked out for my friend and this and her daughter she is now adopted but there are cases we can't be naive of the fact that there are some people who have kids who ought not to perhaps be parents and this is the problem is where the state puts the child through these ins and outs of trials including want to be adoptive or foster parents who let's face it what kind of time does that involve it's a lot of time and it's a lot of invasion of your life but what but what why why see and this is this is this is where it goes wrong so first of all ado adoption is being portrayed since since long as building a family and this is not we are not reproductive products okay so when a child even the case you are just now explaining is a child rights violation even though the adoptive mother will argue oh yeah i gave everything to this child 
So this child was in need because the parents, like you explained, and let's believe that, could for whatever reason not care for this child. So when a family cannot take care of his, their child, then the state has to create alternative care. Now you are saying rightly the child was in foster care. Fine, done. There is no need for the child to uh, change a birth certificate. There is no need for the child to change his or her identity just to fulfill the wish of the adoptive mother to parent a child and have her own child. There's nothing wrong with it. Let the child be grow up in the foster family. And if the child is 21 or 22 or 23 or, and on her own and is able to make her own decision, if the, par if, if the child is then an adult and really wants to be adopted, I wouldn't be the one to object to it, even though I don't like it. But if the, if, if the child and the foster family have have formed social bonds which are not genetic bonds but formed social bonds and there are many other options of you can make a will to include that child so that the child can inherit because that's always a you know you yeah i mean you can get a long-term foster care order so that you can actually make the decisions for the child if it's true that the child cannot be returned to the parents but foster care normally has as its objective it is by definition, temporarily, as long as the child needs care. And you know, the, the, the situation of families, we cannot, we cannot predict uh, the situation of the family. The family can get down within, within a few months. It's equally, a family can recover, and that's what I also see in our searches. Uh, in our last search, the family was totally poor. They couldn't afford milk. They, they had a baby. The mother died three months after the birth. What do you do in India without milk? And out without money to, for the milk, they brought the child to the children's home. The children's home gave the child for intercountry adoption instead of helping the family. The family is now still poor, but you know they're a normal middle class family in a rural area. Okay, lower middle class, but they're doing well when you talk about bare life. So I, I completely object. I think we need to abolish adoption. We need to abolish even domestic adoptions. Very clear slavery, both intercountry adoption and domestic. There are people listening, of course, who will think, well, wait a sec, there's the will of the adoptive parents on the one hand, or the foster parents, but children as well don't really wish to be that different from their cohorts at school to say, oh, I don't have parents, I have these foster parents. Why can't we make room for both where children? can be adopted maybe instead of saying they have to wait till they're 21 to be adopted maybe at 21 they can make the choice to be unadopted because there is something about belonging to a family and being loved that is also important to the developmental growth of children no yeah but, yeah but you know you know for being love and belonging you know love love is endlessly that is also i mean you can love anyone and love can develop between between anyone that's at least my belief and you don't need to own a child you don't need a child you don't need a birth certificate uh, uh, to love a child that this child that you give birth to that it's a lie and i understand that children may want you know be the same with their cohorts but you know these children have problems or the children families have problems and that's the truth and it's important for children and adults and everybody to actually live to the true facts and deal with the facts. And there's, I don't see any reason why foster, growing up in a foster family 
should be different or should be less love or more love should be there if the foster parents are now suddenly the so-called birth parents, which is a lie. So, yeah, so... It's true, and there are many countries, such as in the EU, where no longer on the forms of parental consent for a trip to the museum. Now it doesn't just say parent, it says carer. And maybe there's another word that could come about. Carer sounds like a bit too clinical to me, but I understand what you're saying completely, that we don't need to own children to love them. And this raises larger questions as to what I mentioned earlier about the good life, where biopolitics behind legal adoption should be scrutinized as part of a larger discussion of what child trafficking is. Because yes. people will see child trafficking only as stealing children. It could be Boko Haram, kidnapping all those girls. That's child trafficking. But there's something more pernicious there where there's an exchange of two types of exchange of human life. One for monetary reasons, which deems the child exchangeable at a specific price and ethical value, which then posits their subjectivity through the transformative power of the subject from bare life to good life. So then we can say, well, as I observed at a picnic in Woodstock years ago, visiting a friend, this man came up to me, we started chatting and he said, that's my daughter over there. He was a white American. She was clearly Asian, and he said, that's my daughter. She's Chinese. I adopted her from China, and I looked at him, and I said, well, that's a lot of information. And I was trying to get subtly at the point that he felt that he had to subtitle his own child in this very exchange value way that I find troubling. And there's also, Arun, have you noticed a lot of these adoptive groups and even there's this horrible podcast with Jada Pinkasmith. She had a series of these of having white people who adopted brown and black children on her show to shame them into how can you take care of their hair, which I find itself its own racialism, if you follow me, because now we don't only transnationally adopt, but now we have support groups for white people to say how they get the kinks out of their child's hair and how insensitive they were before. It's so racist, the whole thing. I don't know if you've seen any of these things. Yeah, I've, I've heard about them, but I, I, I have skipped yeah. it. I mean, the... the Transformative puja really, for your child. <laughs> yeah, we really, have, we really have to rethink that. Um, yeah, approach whether, yeah, how, how to define child trafficking, you are right. Trafficking as such is actually, first of all, understood by people in the United States, at least, of, you know, uh, pimping children out for sexual uh, purposes. Um, and, 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 and indeed, as you say, we have the strange distinction between illicit adoption practices. You know, we have a whole working group at the, at the Hague conference which deals with illicit adoption practices, but really fails to say what are licit, I mean, what are legal adoption practices, because you can't, you can't do inter-country adoption right. It will never work. Because when you respect Article 21B, then you cannot say that a country cannot care for its own children. When I was in Malawi, the people were saying, even, even if it's a private business, NGOs or whatever, they were saying, we can arrange community-based care for these children. 
at, at $10 per month for a child. We don't need anybody taking our children from out from Malawi. So I was in Malawi actually trying to <laughs> prevent the last adoption of Madonna and, and uh, brief the human rights uh, organizations there. And there I have to really make a compliment to them that they understand the human rights framework much better than, you know, many Western people who got so used to that we actually have these rights, but forget that, you know, people fought for that. So, so, so we, we should not let our guards down and, 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 and protect human rights defenders and also protect, um, like our founder, Ruli Post, I mean, she's an EU civil servant of the European Commission and the European Commission has the duty to protect the treaty, <laughs> I mean, to guard the treaty. Uh, uh, of the European Union and as part of the treaty is UN Convention on the Right of the Child. So when we have an EU civil servant blowing the whistle on child trafficking for adoption and not only for Romania but blo blowing the whistle about that actually in-country foster care and in-country residential care comes before inter-country adoption and blows the whistle about an adoption mafia, let me really call it mafia and white collar mafia, which also receives EU funds, then, you know, we have to protect those civil servants, which we are not doing as society. And this is not only what we blew the whistle or that she blew the whistle about that, we also blew the whistle about an Italian agency who was buying children from Congo, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And they got away with it. And they got tens of tens of um, millions of, of funds from the European Commission. And then we have, yeah, so this is really white collar crime. And we have these NGOs, including UNICEF, Lumos, Hope and Homes, all these NGOs are currently advocating, Lumos is by the way now also in Haiti, working together with the former, with, a, with these two sisters in Haiti who also got children out during the earthquake. So they're working now on deinstitutionalization. But what does deinstitutionalization mean? Bringing, bringing, yes, some children back to their families, but the other children will go for adoption. So, you know, the, this, this lobby, Lumos, Hope and Homes, Better Care Network, they all want to do away with children's homes. Why is that? Because 10% or 20% of the children are still going on the international market for adoption then. So we have to really see, we have to really start going back on public law, on public care, and making sure that those children who cannot be with their families are being cared for properly in public care. And the case you've just t told me actually is about foster care, and that's public care because foster carers or foster parents, you know, get actually support from the state. They get even support from the state when they have trouble with the children. And if you adopt a child, for example, in the Netherlands, you, are, you have to go on the, or Denmark, you have to go on the normal waiting list for a psychologist. If you have a foster child, you bypass that, you know, you can get very immediate help for your child. So there is a whole support system created for foster parents. And that's, you know, I'm not saying foster parents, care always works out well, there are problems and the system definitely needs improvement. But these are the two options which are essentially mentioned in the, along with Kafala, which is an Islamic version, um, 
which are mentioned in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So why can we as society not respect children's rights, but rather create regulated markets in children? Well, this is a larger question because a lot of people don't even see some of the problems within domestic adoption. I know earlier you said domestic adoption is slightly different, but there are commonalities between the two. And it's how children become themselves products in fulfilling the quote unquote right to have a family, the right to a child. Yet having a child is not a human right. Correct. How did we get here from this idea that children have rights, but we do, we have rights too to have a child. That is a good question. That, 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 that's a weird discourse. I mean, because I really also do not have the answer on how suddenly, you know, we have a right to marry. And of, of course, now everybody has the right to marry any woman who he wants to marry. So I support this idea of, of, of marriage. So I'm not uh, into really, I don't really understand what's so great about marriage. Even, yeah. But the point is, the point is, the point is, you have a right to marry, but you don't have a right to a partner, right? And the same, same is, you know, you have a right for reproduction, but that does not give any one of us to actually the right to reproduce. If we cannot have our children, our own genetic children in whatever ways, then we can't have them. And where and how this, how this, I mean, I'm not a historian, so, so I can only say, you know, as far as I know that it was actually Georgia Tan, I think, you know, in the US who actually started this, this baby business and the secrecy around it. And then, then it spread actually overseas um also to 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 our countries because we didn't have adoptions like this but you know the system as we have it now was started in the 50s again here let me take the example of the netherlands and in greece and other europe uh, in the netherlands is crystal clear that the international social service which is essentially a u.s adoption network and agency they got also the Dutch domestic adoption law influenced along with the foster parents. So the foster parents had actually foster children from other countries who had parents, but the foster parents didn't want to give back the children. So they wanted adoption. So they got in 1956, 54, no, I'm confused. Uh, they got an adoption law passed. And here you have also now in the Netherlands, um, the first investigation went Start investigation. They're starting a new investigation in the domestic adoption system under which women, almost like surrogate mothers, and here we come again to the yeah, fact of uh, of so-called illegitimate children, of which I'm one too. So, but you know, where women and their babies were systematically separated from each other, and you know, giving to couples who were infertile, mostly or wanted to parent a child. And yeah, this, this is going to be investigated. And the modern adoption system is actually that we create paper orphans. We deem, like, this, like the legislation in Bulgaria, we deem or Hungary. So we say, oh, these parents cannot get on their feet again. They don't really have a house. They uh, maybe have alcohol problem or maybe domestic violence or whatever, maybe a lie even on paper. 
And after six months, when they cannot take back the child, we are terminating the parental rights. And then we're sending children from Hungary, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia to the Netherlands for adoption or Sweden or Denmark or whatever. But these, par these children have parents. And these children in Hungary or Bulgaria, they were actually in foster care before. And now we are getting into the next phase where Denmark had suddenly more domestic adoptions than intercountry adoptions because they started also introducing legislation which allows forced adoptions. So in Denmark, children who are in foster care, who have parents, the parental rights are terminated. The children are taken out of the foster care family and given to a domestic adoption family. I mean, how perverse is that? And we are moving in this direction. What do you say to parents who have adopted internationally who think that what we're saying here is absolutely horrific and untrue and cruel? Well, I, I don't really have much to say because I just say, you know, discuss it with me. Uh, go and come visit our office and see it. But I also know that there is no need, that there, there is no way of discussing with that. It is, it is, sorry to say, you know, you cannot make the devil pray because the demand comes, the demand is, is incited by the agencies. That, that, that's also be clear. So, so I will not uh, condemn all adoptive parents because I do know quite a lot of people actually really try to do it with good intentions and they have an image has been created by the agencies but still the money and the demand comes from adoptive parents and you know there's almost literally no way of discussing this with adoptive parents because these discussions become totally irrational and um, we need to discuss it outside the, uh, the, the adoption community we need to discuss it with policymakers and, and ask them, um, I mean, do you want to give your child? So if, you, if you're saying adoption is good, you tomorrow have an accident and you're, you are going to be deleted from the birth certificate. You know, you want that? You're not existent anymore. Of course, you won't care for your child. That's fine. But does that mean you should, the child should get a new birth certificate? And, you know, all legal ties to your brothers and sisters and uncles and your whole family that you, the child gets transplanted like this. So we really have to, there is no way of discussing with adoptive parents. I, I'm tired of that. I've been trying this for 20 years yeah. <coughs> and it ends all, you know, like there, there is hardly any bridge to be built. Um, and, and of course, there, there are adoptive parents who have understood that, you know, they got into something which was not right when for example, adopting from Ethiopia, or for example, adopting from Haiti. There are a couple of adoptive parents who understood they got also screwed over. And you know, when you have an adoptive parent who actually realized, yeah, shit, this child had actually a mother, so the mother was dead on the, on the, on the paperwork. And then, you know, you discover this six years later, and as an adoptive family, you meet the mother in Ethiopia. I mean, what are you going to do? You are not going to be able to shift that child back, which is six years living with you, back to Ethiopia, even if you support the family, because you know the, the child had a different life. So these adoptive families um, suffer a great deal too from the fact that they were also screwed over. I don't want to make them the primary victims, so it's the first family and the child. But they don't, you know, 
it's difficult even for, 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 for a family to travel with the whole family twice a year to Ethiopia. I mean, how, how, how do you pay that? The adoption system needs to be abolished. There needs to be an apology and there needs to be compensation to the victims. Thank you.